Welcome to the Volrath Feed, where we talk about everything associated to the restaurant hospitality industry, all things relating to the wide world of food service. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, the training manager and chef at the Volrath Company. And with me today, as always, is our producer, Justin Pearson. Hey, everyone. Hey, today is episode number three of the feed. Believe it, three of them. Yeah, three down already. Well, almost done. <laughs> today, we are going to be covering sanitation, food service sanitation, very timely topic always, but uh, at the moment, very, very important topic. Uh, we'll be talking about that a little bit amongst ourselves, and we'll have on our show today our guest, Seth Vanderlin, Chef Seth Vanderlin, who is the founder and president of the Heart of House Hospitality, which focuses on helping companies achieve their culinary and sustainability goals. Pretty cool guy. Yeah, and if you're in the mood for a little bit of food travel envy, be sure to check out his Instagram. <laughs> so we mentioned we're going to be talking here about sanitation and all things that go into that topic in the food service world. Very, very important, as we said. And at Valrath, you know, all of our um, supplies and things that we make, our small wares and our equipment, you know, we always have to make sure we're designing those products with sanitation and safety in mind. Yeah. And you know, Rich, that really makes me think about the NSF logo that you see stamped all over everything. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the NSF logo stands for National Sanitation Foundation. And that's, you know, the, the main agency we refer to when we design equipment. The engineers, when they're when they're designing a piece of equipment, that's one of the things that we look at and, and make sure they write the standards. They've got over 1,500 standards that they write that cover different areas of the food service world and um, all, again, making sure that the products are designed to be able to be clean. They're looking at the radiuses in the corners. They're looking at uh, welds. They're looking at clearances. That, you know, going up to a standard buffet, there's probably no less than three standards in play at a typical buffet. Hmm. So you've got your breath guard. That's a standard that's set. The breath guard has to be back so far and up so high. And, you know, that distance is, that is all set. Any areas that food may contact, that's a food contact zone. So that's another area. The, the piece of equipment itself, hot pans or cold pans, those are all designed and with NSF in mind to make sure that everything is done safely. I wonder if NSF employees or anybody in food safety, for that matter, I bet I bet they just can't shut it off when they go out to eat and stuff like that. You know, they're looking at things and going, "Oh no, that hot well, that just doesn't cut it," or, or that's a complete safety violation there. Oh, trust me, uh, my wife. I mean, uh, we <laughs> we go out to, to eat and I'll be like, "There's a whatever over there," and I, you know, you, you're right, you can't shut it off. And then if you've got some kitchen experience, you, you just got the curse twice. You know, you're always looking at all that stuff. So everywhere we go. But it's it's all good to know, right? So the the whole thing with the the sanitation and safety is you, you we're all always looking at that. If we walk into a if anybody walks into a sub shop or somewhere and you can watch the person behind the line if they're standing there leaning up against the wall and you start ordering something, what's the first thing you're thinking? Glove up, friend. Where's your glove, right? Or put wash your hands or something. We all notice those things so much more than we ever used to. Very much so. And I, I might even go as far to say that food could subconsciously taste better knowing that you have that sense of security that it was prepared in a clean and safe manner. Oh, absolutely. I very much appreciate when you can watch that stuff happening. So that's 
Now, those are trends I think we're going to see more of as, as the public becomes more and more aware. And again, as a manufacturer, the things we design, make sure we keep that all in mind. So these standards, I said that NSF writes, the interesting thing about them, though, is that they're not necessarily a requirement by law. Really? Nope. Uh, I figured that would just be one of those things that when it comes to public safety, it would just be regulated like so many other things are. Nope. They're really more regulated or more controlled by what we call the agency having jurisdiction, the AHJ. And so when you ship a product into an area, the AHJ will demand that they meet certain criteria. And a lot of times they'll just defer to that, to the NSF mark or the UL mark, or there's others out there as well that they've tested to a standard. And a lot of them will do that, but that, that doesn't mean that it has to be. If you, like California is a great example or New York, we will make a product to that standard, but those areas might say, well, we still want it to be different in this way or that way, according to their area. So it's really up to the agency having jurisdiction, the AHJ, that decides whether or not you can install that product. Hmm. Isn't that something? I always thought it was a law too, but it's really not. I do find that very surprising, but you know, I guess if it isn't broke, no sense of fixing it with an unnecessary law. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So you know, beyond some of the bigger products that we we think of with safety, it's even down to the little products. So, like, think about ladles and tongs and spoons. Yeah. I mean, those are all NSF product as well. Sure. So when you make a product and you have a weld that has to be approved, and and typically welds do not meet NSF standard. Did you know that? I did not know that. Right, because it's pretty hard to clean all that area in between those two pieces that are joined unless the weld is sealed. So there's a lot of little nuances that are involved. And again, making the small tools even up to um, certain specifications is is very important. So we do things even a little bit differently there where antimicrobials, okay, that's a typically a topical solution that's put on a product after it's made. Is that kind of like a Scotch guard that's sprayed on a sofa or love seat to keep the stains from soaking in and getting all nasty? That's exactly it. They spray it on. You're right. And if you spray that onto something, logic will tell you that if it wears off, you've lost that protection, right? Yep. Well, the same thing happens then in your antimicrobials on small wares and other things that we handle. So Volrath, you know, we do it a little differently. And I think we touched on a little bit of the last show with silver, naturally occurring, occurring silver. People have known for many, many, many years, centuries, that silver is an natural antimicrobial. I would think people long ago didn't necessarily know why they were being kept safe from bacteria and germs. Not that they knew about that either, but right. it must have just seemed like magic to them. Right. Well, that's that's kind of the story I always tell people is, you know, they, they probably dug up this material and molded it into something and stored water and came back in whatever it was, a day or something and looked and went, huh, that water is still doing pretty good in that bowl. And then they had some other material and they went, oh, I wouldn't drink that. <laughs> so, you know, they, they didn't know the science behind it, but they understood that for some reason that material worked really well. Functional and stylish. Right. So the, the silver that we use isn't a topical, though. We put the silver in the material, in the resin. So when we mold the handle, it's throughout the material. It's throughout that entire handle. Oh, okay. So that way, if you have something that happens that breaks through the integrity of the surface, you won't have a breeding ground for bacteria and other yucky stuff. Exactly. Because if you're just spraying it on the outside and you have a crack 
or if something breaks, a chip, you're not protected. But with the silver being embedded in that resin, now the entire handle is protected. So that's a very different way that we go about this. The spray-ons, uh, commonly, I think the trade name for it is triclosan, but there's others out there. They do a good job at, at first. I, I suppose they're man-made. Uh, the problem with man-made is anything else. You can have allergies that you know, people are allergic to it. And the, the naturally occurring silver seems to work really, really well. And it's just a simple process. The moisture in the bacteria and the uh, ions in the silver, you know, one's positive, one's negative. They kind of attract to each other. And then it disrupts the respiration of the bacteria cell. So it can't multiply. And that's really how it kind of controls the bacteria. It's a very natural process. Well, I have a newfound appreciation and respect for silver. So what do we have coming up next, Chef? As promised, uh, we will be talking now with Chef Seth Vanderlin. So welcome to the show, Chef. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, great to have you with us today. Appreciate uh, you taking the time. Why don't we start out with just you telling us a little bit about yourself. And you know, one of the things we always like to talk to a chef about is how'd you get in this crazy world of food service? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of a simple story. Uh, when I was the day that I turned 16, got my license uh, in Northern Michigan, I drove down to a local restaurant, see if they would hire me as a dishwasher. Um, fast forward about a week and a half later, I was on the fryers. <laughs> haven't looked back since. Uh, between then and now, I, I spent some time at uh, multiple casinos in Michigan. Um, my last casino was in uh, Detroit. Um, from Detroit, it brought me over to Milwaukee uh, Casino here. Um, and then that's kind of where I really, the casino life is really what kind of, you know, drove it into me and in the, the cold classical cooking style and the brigade system uh, coming up through the ranks. I uh, worked with a lot of amazingly talented chefs at uh, the casinos. Um, and then, you know, started getting into the ACF competitions, uh, kind of carved out a little niche there, um, and then ended up at uh, Miller Park for the past four seasons. Uh, home in Milwaukee. So that's right. So uh, uh, at, when I was at Miller Park, I really kind of uh, was, um, you know, had a, had a fantastic culinary team there, and it allowed me to focus on some more uh, personal projects of mine, uh, which included some uh, sustainability projects. So that became a a big focus of the last couple of years was, uh, you know, doing some uh, new things in sustainability for high volume operations. Um, and that kind of led to an op opportunity to do my own thing in the consulting world and work with some, you know, great companies on some projects uh, uh, with them and do a little bit of public speaking. So it's been great. Oh, very cool. Well, yeah. Very cool. What was your motivation to take that terrifying leap from a steady paycheck with good benefits into the world of working on your own. Did you have somebody push you in that direction saying like, hey, this would be really good fit for you? Yeah, no, I, for the last pretty much two years, I've had some people reach out to me and ask if I would assist in some projects. And um, at, at first I was, you know, hesitant. I, 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 I you know, give, giving up the, the job I had at Miller Park was, you know, that's, that's a tough thing to do. And I, I, I loved what I did and I, um, but you know, this is an opportunity to kind of do my own thing and, and reach out to some of these contacts that I've made over the past couple of years and say, Hey, let's, let's do this. So yeah, it was definitely, I wouldn't say a push, but, uh, for the past couple of years, people were gauging some interest. Um, and seeing if I would assist with some things that they had going on. Um, I've done some of this in the past with some companies, um, helped them with operational assessments, 
uh, reworking some menus, some cost cards and such, but this is more on a, a larger scale. Where did you get that like initial drive to really get into sustainability um, as you as you are now? Where did that come from? I, where, what was the impetus of that for you? You know, probably I, I've asked I got asked that question before uh, a couple times, and it's difficult to answer because I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, it's something that I've always been. Uh, I, I would think probably it was put into me quite young. I grew up in a small uh, farming community in northern Michigan. Um, and I don't ever claim to be a farmer <laughs> by, all, by, by no means do I claim to be a farmer because the kind of work I think that they have to have and the kind of, uh, patience that they have to have, uh, you know, is, is, is crazy. It's, it's, I have a lot of respect for small farms. And I think when I, as I've come into larger roles, um, in, in bigger operations, whether it be, you know, stepping into a sous chef role, at my first casino, um, you know, and trying to push our, our, our meat program towards uh, a more local uh, a local meat program. Um, it's just something I've always I've always found myself trying to um, push sourcing more local. Um, and when you do that, I think a lot of the other uh, initiatives and projects kind of you know click with you as well. So it's the the local sourcing to me was probably the the early on something I've, I've just always done. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, that led to other things. I mean, you, one of the things I read about you is you were the first property in Major League Baseball to install the on-property biodigester. Yeah, I mean, that, well, that's, that's something that I was very excited to do. That's cool to be the first uh, on that kind of level thinking of, of sustainability in a, in a place as large as a Major League Baseball park. I mean, that's a that's a big operation. How big does a biodigester have to be for that place? You would actually be very surprised on how small it is. It's, oh, really? Yeah, the biodigester. Um, because, you know, Miller Park is not a. It's a. It's a year-round operation. But if you think about it, there's really only, you know, ninety to hundred. Hopefully, you know, closer to hundred events there every year uh, that are are large events. So we're able to kind of spread out the waste that goes into that biodigester into some of the off weeks. Um, and then we, we winterize it in the off season. Um, but we can, you know, it, it's small enough to be essentially the size of one of those rollout totes that you put out of the road, you know, the garbage totes. So it's, that's pretty small, all things considered. Um, but when you're talking on, on a scale of Miller park, where you don't necessarily have a ton of dock space, you don't really have a lot of places to put, you know, large pieces of equipment like this in the kitchens, it works out really well. And we're still still able to, you know, the last year that we had it fully operational, it was, you know, last year we had over 30,000 pounds diverted. Um, so a small piece of machinery can, you know, can do a lot of a lot of good for the environment. Chef, my wife and I, we like to travel to all different kinds of stadiums for the food just as much as the baseball. And one thing we found with Miller Park is that its food is outstanding, has some, some great menu items that really stand out against some other teams. As captain of the ship over there, I can only imagine the many, many things vying for your attention. Uh, I'm curious, what is your process or procedure in developing a menu with your team? 
Uh, as the executive chef, you know, I had was, you know, myself, my team, um, and obviously the concessions team we had, um, we were tasked with yeah, writing all of the menus for the entire season. And um, usually right around August of the previous season is when I would start kind of pushing the team to brainstorm ideas for the following year. So it's a year round uh, a year-round project um, that you know it was very tough to do when we were in the uh, the deep playoff run uh, two years back. But you know it, it was yeah, it's a it's a big process that probably one out of every thirty ideas that makes it onto paper actually makes it into a tasting, uh, and then from there you know we kind of weed out the individual items until um, we're satisfied with what we have. Um, one of the Kind of one of my different unique approaches to ballpark foods. It, it, it definitely was, you know, bucking the trend. Is I tried to stay away from the the larger, uh, I don't want to call them circus items, but the you know the six foot long bratwurst or whatever. You know, that, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I, I I tried to fight that fight as long as possible when I was at like party. There wasn't no no one was really pushing for it often, but you you know you'll see these just you know burgers in between pizzas and stuff and people like what are you gonna do to top that i'm like nothing <laughs> you know like, <laughs> we're, we're gonna i'm trying to source the best product possible we're gonna put it on you know local bread <laughs> and we're gonna make we're gonna bring local brands in and that's that's kind of what our focus was more on right as i get older i absolutely appreciate those you know more healthful you know, local breads, good breads versus some of the other stuff. But there's things you just have to have. Oh, yeah. You have to have cheese. Oh, you just got to have a brat. We're in Wisconsin. We got to have our brats. You know, when you look at how many outlets did you have, though? How many concepts did you have to? Oh, wow. We had 70 some. I, that's probably not even accurate anymore. When I left, I believe we had 70 some health licenses, uh, different operations for carts. Uh, we also ran all of the with 67 suites um we had seven all-inclusive areas we were doing uh you know tons of catering all-inclusive uh we did team meals um we had you know two clubs one of them was an all-inclusive club so or one of them was a like a premium all-inclusive club so there was always yeah menus were always changing there was always something different Right. So one thing you mentioned, I just caught you say that was that you had health licenses for each one of these different outlets. Yes. Does that mean that each one of these outlets were inspected as its own separate space? And then how do you handle, you know, we're, we're talking about sanitation here and things today. How do you handle that? Like at that large of a scale, like each one of those locations separately inspected and separately licensed? And how did that work? Yes. Every one of those locations was uh, separately licensed, separately inspected. Uh, we actually had uh, individual um, serve safe manager certifications for every location. Um, wow. I was, I'm a serve safe instructed, uh, instructor proctor. Um, so I would be teaching classes in the off season to, um, our leads, our concession stand managers and such. And we had, you know, 70 plus certified, uh, food safe managers, which I believe from what I had heard from the state was the most in the state, uh, because of how many you know, different licenses we have to have. We took food safety, you know, very seriously. We were always kind of um, looking at different ways that we can put together uh, written procedures run by the health department. We had a very, very good relationship. I think ESPN, I think it was two years ago, released uh, some sort of 
um, uh, ESPN, the magazine released some sort of uh, article that ranked Miller Park as the number one in food safety uh, for that time. So, you know, it's always something that when you deal with a population or when you deal with a uh, operation that could feed 45,000 people, you know, for 10 consecutive days, assuming that we sell it every day, uh, that's, you know, a, a lot of food that flows through that operation. And yeah, when they switch to the grading system uh, a couple of years back, that's something that, you know, we took a lot of pride in. We had every single one of those operations had an A. Wow. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's difficult to manage, but at the same time, you don't have a choice. You know, you food safety is of the utmost importance. Well, you've got a huge responsibility, as you mentioned, for that many people. Uh, when you when you looked at stocking those areas and buying equipment, things, and you know how important or what were the decisions you went through to to determine which pieces of equipment all the way down? I would imagine the smallwares, right? Everything in between the, that and your major piece of equipment, making choices there for food safety and function. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our, our, our decisions were based on practicality, practicality and, uh, you know, how well it could be cleaned, how well it performed uptime, such like that, you know, how easy it was to be uh, maintained. Um, we had a, a fantastic facilities manager that put together a, a great preventative maintenance program. Um, so something that kind of fit into our operation um, and, you know, it just needed to perform. Smallwares and you know utensils, something that you know definitely was easily cleanable, kind of would hold up to being beat up on a grill a few times, and and still, you know, <laughs> tongs still clicking the next day, spatula is still not falling apart on you on the on the grill. So, oh right, I can't even imagine like you know the amount of uh, transportation every piece of equipment you had goes through. Like where they go back to a central wash facility and and then back out distributed back to the locations or how did that work well it just depends on the operation like our, our suites we had a, a two central two cent, central suites kitchens on two different levels of the stadium um and all of those items yes they would flow back to uh one of those kitchens to be cleaned our concession stands uh were all outfitted with three compartment sinks uh so for the most part they were self-sustained um, but our all-inclusive areas would all need to come back uh, to our large service-level kitchen. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a tremendous amount of transportation um, and a lot of a lot of manpower to get from A to B. Right. Okay, so I, I guess, you know, there, there's a, a thought now of, of with things going on in the world with COVID-19 at the moment, you know, Seth, how do you see – the industry changing coming out of this we we know that things are going to change of public perceptions um diff, different operational things you know what are some of the things you think you'll see coming out of this uh, yeah i think you're going to see a, a large you know community focus on um you know food safety food handling procedures not only from local regulatory authorities like the health department but i think the public perception um, is going to is going to change. Um, I think some of the common areas, you know, public facing areas like where you would get your ketchups, your lids, you know, stuff like that. Those one use, single use items. There's there's going to be a tremendous amount of focus on what that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, so not only how the cooks and the the staff and the 
back of house is handling food, but what the public the, the public perception is going to change on on what the public touches. Um, so there's going to need to be a, a, a big shift. There's there's going to be uh, a shift in what needs to. It, it just it, it needs to happen. We need to be focusing on um, making sure that you know we're not putting a tremendous amount of items out at once. That that items that can be touched by multiple hands are coming out of a, a, a dispenser, not just in a basket. Um, the head needs to appear to be organized. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's not going to be a trend. Um, I think if, you know, you put the word trend to it, you'll see things like uh, local sourcing or healthy eating or, you know, these different kind of things that have happened over a longer period of time. Um, you're going to see the public perception towards food safety change immediately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's happened like overnight. Yeah. I mean, this collective cultural shift of this magnitude is staggering. And yes, and there's this societal demand for these issues to be addressed with a sense of urgency. Yeah. And, I, and people will need to adapt. I know there's going to be a, a big focus, like I said, on uh, back of the house operations, especially when the, the health inspector comes in. But what people need to understand is uh, it's less the concern is on that than and more of the concern is what the public, how the public views your operation from, you know, your, your guest facing areas. All right. I think it's, I know back of house is going to be addressed and, and a, a major concern is it always has been and should be. Uh, even more so, I guess, with heightened awareness. But I think really the front of the house is is going to be the area that you you're not going to be able to do too much there, right? You as much as you can do, you should do because it's all about that perception. Yeah, and that's you know it, it's you, people should look at the way that they're if they can they should look at the way of you know how their front of the house location is set up. If you're a quick service operation, um, you know are, are you set up to you know order mobily um you know being able to not have that face-to-face -face interaction that's already kind of like i said been more of a, a, a trend anyways but it's going to be a large piece of your business likely going forward um are you set up to kind of help with social distancing after uh you know after this pandemic is kind of made its way through um do you have stanchion set up or do you have kind of stickers that say you know please wait here for the for the for the next order uh taker um you know if you have kiosks people people have been installing kiosks and and people have been using kiosks but now people's perception of touching a kiosk that 50 people have just touched in the past you know 30 minutes they're not going to be <laughs> maybe not be fond of that so how how, how are your cleaning procedures with with those um, do you have uh, this, uh, sanit uh, sanitizer dispensers by your single-use items for people to use? Such like that. I think some of those little things that people might not be thinking of is is really going to, you know, be in the public eye here shortly. All right. Just think about uh, sit-down restaurants. I mean, that table, you you wipe it down after the people ahead of you, but maybe you didn't always wipe the the chair top to bottom. Now it's like you'd be probably prudent just to do that, right? To give that perception of everything gets touched, excuse me, everything that has been touched gets wiped down and, and cleaned. I Absolutely. think, you know, generally dining, hopefully we still will get together in our groups of uh, families and things and go out and be able to sit together closely. I'd, 
at meal times. But I, I, you're right. I think in the, the lines waiting for things or just standing next to other people, you, we're already very wary about that. You look and you're thinking, how far is that person from me? It's just automatically right now in our minds in just a very short time. And I think you're right. It's going to continue on. Yeah. And the, 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 the silver lining or the positive that I think we can take out of this is people want to, you know, maybe not right now, but people are going to want to get back out there. You know, people are going to want to get into these restaurants the, you know, people are wanting to, to support restaurants right now. And quite frankly, either can't because they're in quarantine or they're just, you know, af- af- you know, afraid to even get a takeout or afraid to do a delivery, but people do want to, are going to eventually want to get out there. And when they do, the restaurant operators need to be ready. They need to be, you know, thinking of, I, there's a tremendous amount of, of stress and pressure on their plates right now. Um, but it, I think that, you know, when they open their doors back up, they should be ready kind of immediately for what is, I think, to be the new normal. What might be some of your predictions that we as consumers and, and patrons of restaurants can expect to become new normals? Uh, I would think that there is going to be an increase, like I said, in the uh, technology, uh, the mobile ordering, the ordering ahead. I think that's no longer going to be just a, a, a chain restaurant style um, thing. Um, it's going to be, you know, more mainstream. I think you'll see more apps and development um, on those that can help out some of the individual uh, restaurants. Um, that's one thing that's good right now is the innovation necessarily doesn't stop. You know, a lot of people can't, you know, they can't work in restaurants, but some of the people that are working on the software and the, the apps to help the restaurants, they can still work. You know, they're, they're working on these applications. They're seeing these real world problems and they're coming up with solutions. Um, I also think you'll, you'll, you'll see a, a faster um, move away from cash from, you know, and more of the, you know, touchless, you know, credit cards on the machine. So you're not having that actual transaction of, of physical cash going to the registers. That's something that we had um, in the ballpark setting that we have, we've seen. Um, not as much in Wisconsin yet, but some of the larger cities, you, you have cashless locations um, and some, some very few stadiums are actually completely cashless already. Um, so I think you'll see kind of an increase, increased push for that. Um, I think on the restaurant end, uh, you'll see some likely some different things come out with, you know, just, I'm just, you know, spitballing an idea or I'm, I'm just, I'm just, you know, uh, uh, thinking about this. It's not actually, I don't have any inside information, but I think you'll see some, uh, changes with, uh, you know, what's expected, um, for personal hygiene in the back of the house, as far as hand washing procedures, hand washing sinks, you know, how well you have to have your staff trained. Um, you know, it's hand washing is the number one preventative thing you can do to prevent, you know, viruses. Um, and that's what the COVID-19 is, is a, is a virus, you know, handling bacteria can be but you know, they can be managed with time and temperature controls. Viruses, can't be. Um, hand washing and practicing proper personal hygiene are the number one things you can do. So I think those, we talked about the, you know, sanitizer dispensers and stuff, you know, having these things more readily available, um, you know, proper hand washing, more hand washing sinks, um, 
more emphasis on single use gloves, um, no bare hand contact with ready to eat foods. Um, you'll see probably stricter regulations on, on some of those things from your local regulatory authorities. While I was researching this topic, I had an idea pop in my head where, you know, how public hand washing has made the shift to a touchless industry with automated soap dispensing and water that turns on with a wave of a hand. Well, do you think it could be possible we could see more automation within the food industry, like dispensing of condiments on a hot dog you get at a ballpark? Yeah, that's something that, you know, to be honest, I've, I've looked into some different food service robotics uh at my time at miller park there's a lot of um there's a lot of good that comes out of that there's a lot of you know it, re it takes the bare hand contact the chances of somebody not practicing good hygiene on, on on touching the food um they have a lot of different interesting concepts that are being put together in you know all over the country there's a a, a salad concept i believe in um, I think I see, I saw it in Boston where it mixes a salad in a, in a robot bowl, essentially, or there's, uh, um, you know, a, a pasta place that would toss a different pasta sauce, uh, meat options and, and cook it in front of you in a, in a, essentially a bowl with a robot arm. Oh, cool. Um, and you're just pressing buttons on, on a keypad and there's no interaction at all. So yeah, some of those items you'll, you're some of those different concepts you'll see uh they're already they're already coming anyways um and a lot of that had to do with um the labor force just it's you know we were, we were we were in a very very good economy with very very low unemployment um and finding culinary workforce um was was difficult and you know that that's what was kind of pushing that ai that automation and now it's probably going to be passing that torch from you know, the workforce to the food safety aspect, but still driving it. You know, everything we do, be it a machine or however we do it, moving going forward, though, we, we've already got a lot of good things in place. We just have to do it. As, as someone, you, you teach serve safe, right? If we follow those practices, even if it's AI or some other way, we're, we're still having to make sure that we, we call those the hazard analysis critical control point, right? That there'll be points along the way. We've got a lot of good things already built into ServeSafe that'll just need to be maintained. And if we if we look at ServeSafe as it is, it just covers all those things I think you just talked about, right? Washing hands, sanitizing surfaces. Um, do you, I, I would imagine you don't, but I'll, I'll let you answer. Do you see any major changes to ServeSafe or anything coming additionally? Because I think ServeSafe does such a good job of identifying just good practices all along the way. It really is a over encompassing program that from back door all the way through watches food safety. Absolutely. Serve safe is, is, you know, the industry standard, if you will. Um, and I don't know if there'll be other, you know, changed regulations that come out in the FDA food code or requirements. Um, I wouldn't anticipate that. What I do anticipate um, the FDA food code is adopted by the local regulatory authorities and they kind of, I, I wouldn't say pick and choose what they want to adopt, but they sure, you know, just based on different, you know, states, different cities, different governments, they kind of might choose to emphasize certain things. And I think that um, you'll see a larger emphasis on the personal hygiene aspect of 
of the FDA food of the FDA food code of local regulatory authorities really enforcing more. Um, you know, if they were a little bit lenient on, well, you don't necessarily you have a hand sink that's accessible to you this location, but because it's an older kitchen, we've kind of let it slide for a while. You know, that they're not requiring you to have a hand sink in a certain location because it's this one's close enough. I think you're going to see some. You know, nope, this is how it is. It's cut and dry. Put a hand sink there. Maybe some of those grandfathered in type operations. Yeah. Upgrade. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Good point. I I think you're right. Absolutely, because we do see a lot of that where. Maybe it's not as enforced as strictly as it should be because it's been there for so long or that particular uh, inspector doesn't it's going to give you a pass on it. But I think you're right. Those days might be over. Yeah. It, like I said, it's just probably going to just how they enforce things, I think, is going to change. Um, I, I think they'll be more likely to, uh, you know, quite frankly, write somebody up for having infractions than they have in the past. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's not something to be to be scared about as an operator. Um, you just need to, um, you know, understand that this is understand this is the new normal and this is it, it's it's a ever changing world. Um, and, you know, you likely if you've been in business for this long, you're practicing safe food practices anyways. So it's it shouldn't be that much of a change. Um, there might be some equipment or some. Uh, you know, different upgrades or changes that you have to make. But um, I think that, yeah, I don't see a lot of regulation being changed, just how it's interpreted. I think one of the fallouts that we're going to see an increase in volume with the new norm is the number of air quote experts that are out there social shaming businesses through social media, taking pictures and and claiming that, oh, this place is in violation of whatever. And they clearly have no idea what safety regulations are and they really could have a detrimental effect on on businesses yeah and that's a slippery slope you know it's you, because when you start when the social shaming that you're talking about that that that's definitely happened and it's happening it's happening already um you know I, i've i've definitely have seen that a lot and and my world is being a chef at a casino or being a, a, a chef, you know, for, for a ballpark where you kind of turn somebody who's not an expert into a de facto expert when they take a picture of what they deem to be, you know, <laughs> a not up to code and, or, you know, you'll get the occasional like, well, I, I got sick from eating your bratwurst and well, I mean, do you have 12 beers in the parking lot? You know, <laughs> that's, that's why you probably got sick in the bathroom. But right, right. <laughs> either way, either way, there's going to be, uh, you know, there there is a different public perception now. And we need to be, well, that's just how it is. There's no like accepting of that. <laughs> there's just, that's, that's how it is. Okay. Well, that's uh, quite a bit of things to think about there is what we look at uh, in the world ahead. I think that's it for today, everyone. I uh, want to say um, hopefully you found this an informative and insightful look into the uh, world of food service sanitation and some of the things that go into that. And thank you, uh, Chef Seth, for joining us today and telling us a little bit about what you've got going on. Any any parting words today, Chef? Oh, no, thank you guys for having me. Um, yeah, I, I guess the one thing I can say is, you know, it, Things have changed. Um, I, I, I do think that our industry is 
has a very bright future. Um, but when we come back, you know, we just need to be, you know, managing our people, you know, manage our teams, manage our leaders with compassion, with strength, because everybody's going to be coming back into uh, this environment. And there's a, a lot of stress, a lot of uncertainty in our, our business right now. So it's, it's very important that and very important that we, you know, manage our people properly and, and uh, with compassion and, um, you know, and, and thankfulness. So no, thank you guys for having me. I, yeah, no, thank you. And I really love that compassion and we're going to need that in the days ahead. Right. Very well said. Um, speaking of things well said, chef, I'd like to ask you, I like to ask chefs when they, when they are on the show, as you're going through your career and, you know, coming up through the ranks, we've had our mentors and people that have inspired us. And I always like to ask, do you have any memorable quotes from people, uh, in your career or personal life that, um, quotes that have stuck with you, things that you, you think about either, um, humorous or, or just, um, ins- inspiring any quotes that you'd like to give us, leave us with a parting quote. Uh, yeah. And this one can be taken in multiple ways. Um, my dad always told me do something, even if it's wrong. And, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, as, as a chef who takes pride in, uh, mise en place and being very structured and organized, that does not make a lot of sense. And, in in my world uh my brother and i actually kind of make fun of it we're like do something even if it's wrong you know 20 years later we're like that doesn't make any sense but you know i think doing stuff with purpose doing stuff uh uh you know keeping things organized keeping things structured is is the way to do it but at the same time you know you need to keep busy especially now when when you're kind of everybody's kind of quarantined and uh locked up in their house you know do something to keep your mind sharp yeah yeah perfect Perfect. Well, thanks, Chef. Uh, We appreciate that. And we will have Chef Seth back on the show again in future, uh, discussing a few more topics with us. So we'll look forward to talking with you again, Chef. Uh, Justin, any last words for today? Yeah. Uh, Just want to remind everybody to hit that subscribe button. Never miss an episode. Never miss a topic. Never miss a conversation. We'll have lots of more great chefs on. So please hit that subscribe button. And if you like what we're doing, go ahead and share it with your friends as well. Excellent. Also, if you have any thoughts about a topic that we've covered or show ideas that you'd like to see discussed, please visit us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed and let us know what you think. And in parting, I always like to leave the quote that I had in the industry from my father. And he always would say, just don't worry about the other guy. Just do what you do best. And no one's ever going to beat you. Until next time, everyone. Take care.